Hello, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer here at Boston University. Uh, we're back. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Mike Fernandez, CCO of Enbridge. And Mike, uh, welcome back to another season of The Crux of the Story. How was your summer? Uh, it's been terrific. You know, I found some time with family and friends, uh, managed a short staycation. Uh, also, apropos to today's discussion, had the opportunity to kind of represent the crux, if you will, uh, at a uh, global event of science and technical editors, where I interviewed actually a former uh, guest of our show, uh, Pfizer's uh, chief communicator, uh, Sally Sussman. Um, so that was kind of nice. Of course, the great disappointment of the summer has been our New York Yankees. I'm afraid oh, it's uh, wait until next year time. <laughs> oh, man. You know, they had a couple of exciting young folks come up, and the best one now is out for the season That's right. with an injury. It seems like they're jinxed this year. But uh, I'm also happy the Red Sox aren't doing so well. So uh, <laughs> it's a mixed blessing. So this is our sixth season, Mike, wow. which is really over 100 episodes, and we have a lot of great guests lined up to talk about pressing issues for communicators, including the fate of ESG, reputation management and trust, generative AI, emerging organization models for corporate teams, and whether business language is getting worse. And today we're going to get off to a fast start with a great guest and a topic, a topic's really that it, that's at the heart of just about every important global debate, particularly climate change. The challenge that scientists, business and government leaders and others face when communicating scientific facts in a crisis. For people in our field, Mike, it's essential that we understand why people are increasingly skeptical about science and scientists. This trend has consequences, as you know, for policymaking in courtrooms and for political processes. It's, an important, it's important for an economic and political system built on expertise that we restore trust in our experts. Our guest is Christopher Reddy, who believes that for scientists, a crisis can be an opportunity to deliver fact-based content. He is an ocean chemist and a leader in the study of marine pollution and the development of environmentally friendly industrial chemicals. He's a senior scientist at the Department of Marine Chemistry and Geochemistry at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and a faculty member of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology slash Woods Hole Joint Program in Oceanography. For more than 25 years, Chris has been on the front lines of high-profile ocean disasters, including the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, as both a scientist and a communicator. He recently published his first book, Science Communication in a Crisis, an Insider's Guide. In the book, Chris shares lessons from working on crises, including what worked, what didn't work, and what he could have done better. While not a prescriptive book on sort of, quote unquote, acing interviews, it does provide fellow scientists with helpful guidance and honest anecdotes on the highs and lows of communicating about science during environmental crises. Welcome to The Crux, Chris. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. 
Hey, thanks, Gary and Mike, and the wonderful warm up and intro. Make my mom cry. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. We're very, we play yeah. at the heartstrings here at the Crux. Yeah. You know, it's all about heart. Well, um, let me get right into your book, uh, Chris. Uh, in it, you talk about how important perception is in a crisis. Even the way you introduce yourself to someone can have a huge impact in how they receive information from you. So when someone asks you what you do, how do you frame your answer? Are you chemist, scientist, or an oceanographer? And do you change it based on audience uh, and their expected reactions? Uh, absolutely. You know, something as simple as uh, how you introduce yourself can play a huge role about the outcome uh, and the first perception of uh, any, any person you communicate science with. So at the end of the day, I'm a chemist mm -hmm. um, uh, who happens to be a senior scientist at an oceanographic institution. So, um, but if I tell somebody I'm a chemist nine times out of 10, then those crinkles uh, they'll tell me that when they were in 11th grade, uh, they almost burnt down. <laughs> yeah, you know, it always plays out like that. So, you know, you use chemists sparingly, but that's really what I am. I'm a chemist who happens to, my laboratory happens to be the ocean, but at the end of the day, I'm a chemist. Now, my title is senior scientist, so I could use scientist. Um, scientist kind of is kind of a little confusing for people. They're not quite sure where to run with it. Um, often the default is, you know, kind of the last pick in gym class, you know, kick me sign, white lab coat, you know, bow tie, glasses. And, you know, that is something I certainly doesn't, don't want to present uh, of that type of stereotype. And then there's oceanographer, which is just, you know, everybody loves an oceanographer. Everybody wanted to be a marine biologist. Everybody talks about going to Nanners every summer and having a clam bake and it, this warm and fuzzy um, things. And I am an oceanographer, but I don't own a boat. I'm not a very good sailor. You know, uh, I really don't like going don't, doing research in the middle of the ocean, uh, but that's what I am. So at the end of the day, I will tell people that I'm an oceanographer who studies the chemistry or, or something like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, you just kind of, follow the lead, but I usually don't say chemist that's, straight up. It's so interesting about just about the way you introduce yourself and the frame it sets for people in the mindset. That's, uh, I think, a really good uh, lesson for us to think about in the public relations communications industry. And by the way, Chris right. just got a big award for chemistry, which I will come back to um, later in the, in the interview. But I want to uh, jump back to the topic on communicating science, which we all know can be challenging, both for the communicator who has to translate complex scientific ideas for, you know, for non-scientists and for the audience who are receiving it. Um, they have to process and understand what they're learning. In times of crisis, you mentioned that scientists have three default modes. I thought this was so good in the book. Non-communicator, jilted lover and sheriff to deal with the challenges of communicating science. Can you share what those three modes mean and how understanding them can help scientists become better communicators? Sure. I mean, the non-communicator is, is that itself. You know, they just don't want to talk to the media for whatever reason. You know, it's not their thing. They don't think it's a responsibility. They don't want to, you know, that, that's it. Then there's a the jilted lover. And they are the folks who once were interviewed and thought that they gave the greatest interview known to mankind. 
and was, you know, just everything. They probably gave, you know, three PhDs worth of information and, you know, whatever, but they thought they were awesome. And then suddenly the story comes out and it's not what they <laughs> wanted or what they expected. And they're really angry about the headline because it's, you know, it's provocative right. and it's not really the right story. And they're mad at the writer and I'll never do this again. And then there are some scientists who will communicate with the media and they often act like um, the sheriff. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the media plays out kind of as a good and bad. And the sheriff will be, you know, somebody who is uh, critiquing. Um, and, and they're certainly allowed in some respects, but um, creating kind of a negative atmosphere um, that the media and other folks can weaponize. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a crisis is about making a bad thing from getting worse. And I want scientists to play a role in making things better uh, and certainly not communicate, not be a Delta lover and figure out a way that, you know, there's a place for sheriffs, but there's a much bigger place for uh, finding a trustworthy, mutually beneficial outcome. Uh, Chris, congrats on the book. Uh, the, the book, Science Commun Communication in a Crisis, uh, delves into the difficult task of conveying scientific knowledge when it matters most in an understandable ways. In the book, you explore challenges of translating complex science, uh, scientific topics, concepts into accessible language fostering then transparency and uncertainty and using strategic communication to mitigate misinformation, as you were just alluding to. What would you say are the biggest challenges in conveying scientific information to the public today, especially in moments of crisis? I blame Steve Jobs uh, and Wikipedia because it has created a, an atmosphere or an, uh, a world in which folks can whip out their iPhone um, you know, either ask or write or something, you know, how many Red Sox players have won the Triple Crown or whatever. And, um, you know, they get an answer in four seconds. And uh, that's what they want. And they accept it as certain, you know, that they, they, they don't want to deal with nuance, right? Um, science is not built for speed. And, you know, the nuances cannot be captured in four seconds. It's not, you know, Wikipedia has got its place. Uh, but, you know, science is not built for speed and there's nothing wrong with that uh, at all. And in fact, that makes what it makes such great stories. Uh, but, you know, a lot of folks want something now. They don't want to deal with uncertainty and they don't want it to change. Yeah, it, it kind of gets to the heart of, of, of science being really kind of the art of discovery, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, in my world... Um, I live and breathe for uncertainty. If I don't know the answer, that's that's why I'm working. You know, if I knew the answer, I wouldn't study it. But you know, most folks and they're so busy, they're running around, they're taking the kids to soccer, they got all these things going on. They don't want to delve and deal with all these uncertain terms. They want an answer so that they can move on and do whatever they want to make their lives better. And that is the challenge. Is the the, the kind of the Willingness to appreciate and embrace uncertainty. So, Chris, you've had lots of experiences. Are there any moments that you've had that underscore the challenge of science communications in a crisis? Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. And, 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 and most of them have been <laughs> not so ideal, uh, but they're getting a little bit better. You know, I once gave a talk 
after an oil spill that happened locally. It was in 2003. I live in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And, and about a week after the event, uh, there was a, a kind of a town hall meeting with you know people from the state and the government and all these folks kind of there. And and I was the sole scientist. And uh, you know, and I had data, real data from this ongoing oil spill, which is non-trivial at all to have that. And I showed up. I had the my best blue suit on. I gave this beautiful talk. I talked in front of this audience about in the next five years, I was going to revolutionize oil spill science. I told these people that I was going to be, that this was an unbelievable opportunity for us to move the field forward. And I thought I was great. And then afterwards, uh, you know, this is where the big challenge was for me. The kind of the eye opening was this, you know, husband and wife and their two kids with the crew cuts, eight and 10 years old. Uh, a guy says to me, hey, can you tell me when I can start feeding my yeah. family? You know, I'm a yeah. fisher. And uh, it wasn't a game anymore. Right? They didn't care that I was going to have five papers in environmental science and technology and revolutionize the field and blah, blah, blah. I don't know when he could yeah. feed his family. And that's the eye-opening time that this, you know, a lot of times for scientists, it's a little bit of a game. Mm-hmm. It is a game for all of us, right? I mean, that's where we, we succeed and we're competitive. Uh, but it ain't a game when somebody's asking about that's feeding right. their family. Yeah. So, so Chris, can we follow up on that? And Mike's question, you know, we talked about the roles that people sort of default to. So then what is the right role? And looking back on that experience, how would you uh, describe the way you you would have in in retrospect presented yourself? Yeah. So um, what I would have said first was that, um, that I've studied oil that like that it had spilled here, and you know, uh, you know, every oil has different properties and behaviors. And I would say that overall, this is not the type of oil that we're going to have to worry about for decades or even years. You know that that it's well it's well positioned for easy cleanup. That you know, I, I'm not worried about a doomsday situation here. Um, then I would pivot and say. Um, you know, um, while I'm an academic, I know these folks who work for the state and the federal government, and they are excellent, and they follow the right criteria, mm-hmm. and they're they're motivated, they're local, they have family who also are fishers, and I have the utmost tra- uh, trust for them. And if I can help you out more, um, you know, here's my card, and if you're getting any results that you want to understand, just let me know. Uh, but I, I'll do whatever I can to help you out. But at the end of the day, I would tone down the doomsday that happens when there's an oil spill and then support, uh, if it's true, are the local and uh, state responders. Mm -hmm. Interesting. By the way, I love this idea that science isn't built for speed. And we've seen a lot of lessons over uh, uh, about that in in recent years. One of the things I loved about your book, having, uh, and Mike as well, too, knows this, we both led companies through crises is that teamwork is so important. And uh, it's a recurring theme in your book. Um, Often during crises, people from different stakeholder groups, you know, sort of get thrust together. And as you share, how well these relationships depend on team members understanding each other. In your book, you give advice to scientists on how to work with non-scientists during a crisis. Can you share an example of a team that worked together. I, I, Chris, I worked on the Fukushima nuclear crisis in Japan. And boy, what you write there really struck a chord 
with me because we were communicators talking to nuclear engineers, talking to the public and investors, et cetera. And that teamwork is just so essential. Yeah. I mean, you know, first off, you know, often when the scientist enters the room, there often there's a thought that, you know, we, we wear a cape, right? That somewhere or another we're smarter and better because we have a PhD in, in a lab. And that's just foolish. You know, when you get into the realm of crises, have saved you know countless miles of, of of coastline in a previous oil spill. So the first thing you have to recognize is that you know that there are a lot of talented people who are not like us. Uh, and then the next thing is you have to understand and and have an appreciation about what they consider success in their what is their job, and and what do they call success, and what is the risk and reward for their involvement. So you know it's very much having an appreciation of the cultures and the nuances that they deal with. And once you get to that point of appreciating what other people want and you recognize that they're talented folks, um, you can create a significant amount of, of synergy with trust and respect uh, across a wide range of experts. Yeah, it, it is so important. And you know, our job too is then to, to work with you to use our expertise yeah. as communicators, right? To, to simplify without um, making things inaccurate, right? Um, yeah. But to show people the facts. And, yeah. and uh, so it's so important. I, I, I love this idea of the book because um, we often know as communicators what we want, but we don't frame it the right way for, for the scientist or the scientist doesn't understand our purpose in asking these questions and, and going into some depth with them. So this is what I love about the book is uh, if you read it as a communicator, it will help you communicate with scientists during a crisis. Yeah. And, and, you know, just going back to the whole teamwork, I tell scientists all the time that they will become better scientists when they have to uh, communicate their science with other people. That's right. And, and you'll feel better about yourselves. We, you know, every scientist that I know, we are, in, you know, slumping all the time with imposter syndrome. And you can feel a lot better about yourself when you can make a meaningful impact and change. And when you work with other people who ask really good questions, again, they might not have a PhD, they might not have a big research lab, but you would be surprised how impactful they can be on your science. Yeah. So, so what do we, we're just coming out of a period in global history where, you know, through COVID and the pandemic, where science was questioned for a variety of reasons, um, uh, including political um, causes I, or political positions, I guess, got in, inserted into politics. Again, I said, you know, we're, we have an economic and sort of social system built on expertise, and now experts are less trusted. How do we restore trust in science? You know, what I would, I would ask, the first thing my mindset is to try to identify um, why folks may be anti-science. And, uh, you know, more globally, Al Gore was right when he wrote Inconvenient Truth about climate change. More often than not, people love science when it's convenient mm -hmm. to them. Interesting. But it's inconvenient. That's, that's the challenge is, you know, nobody wants to deal with bad news. Nobody wants to hear another scientist writing another paper saying that, you know, uh, two more beers a week is going to make you, you know, 
get sicker for whatever. Well, and to that element of discovery you talked about before, sometimes that changes because you're constantly, you know, in the mail you of, of, of getting, trying to get more precise, yes. trying to get more information. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that that's the one of the biggest disconnects between science and the lay public is, is that, um, you know, science isn't a, a house mm -hmm. of cards. You know, that, that one study, you know, gets uh, changed over and, and there's more work being done. You know, science is this infinite, never-ending jigsaw puzzle that is constantly being added to in different spots. And yet once in a while, there might be a mistake, you know, yeah. like we all have in a jigsaw puzzle, but it'll yeah. get fixed. And you know, what we want to do when we're thinking about a critical issue is look at how complete the puzzle is and where the image looks and how it's going to yeah. fill in. And not necessarily talk about one bad piece, but, but embrace the completeness and where we are and what trajectory we have for completeness of a you know, fuller, uh, more uh, informative picture. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. But there's also a, a seemingly a, a systemic piece, too, in this sort of trust-mistrust sort of thing. I, I recall back in 2015, there was a cover story in National Geographic, of all places, and the headline the, on the cover was War on Science. And, 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 and the publication cited the degree to which the general public did not believe kind of settled science. You know, so we live in an age where we've got incredible amount of information and scientific knowledge um, from the safety of fluoride and vaccines to the reality of climate change. Uh, but seemingly this gets still bollocked up in uh, furious opposition politics what can we do about that? You know, here's, here's what usually happens. You know, so somebody pushes backs on, you know, fluoride and drinking water or whatever. And, you know, uh, we get frustrated as scientists. And what we want to do is show more PowerPoint presentations with more Excel default <laughs> figures with, you know, the call that horrible colors and default and, and pointing your fingers zillions of times. Can't you see the data? Um, it doesn't work. You know, more PowerPoints is not going to get anybody to embrace, you know, fluoride or vaccines. Um, and, you know, uh, scientists have to um, stop lecturing and listen and, and, you know, understand why uh, these folks pushing back or, and, um, and also recognize that, you know, it's easy for us to just say, oh, these people are uninformed. You know, they only graduated from high school or, or whatever, but that's not the mindset you want. You, you want to have the mindset that I think that this is a, a topic of interest to these people and that we have an opportunity to, uh, to learn why they think that way. And, you know, how can we um, even design our experiments in the future to address them? But what we can't do 
is Excel spreadsheets and telling them you know, their CV about where they got their PhD and you know, all that stuff. <laughs> now, you're very good That's about great. talking about non-information and misinformation, both of which clearly pose challenges uh, to both scientists and communicators. Um, non-information being the um, absence of accurate, uh, reliable um, uh, scientific information. And it really can influence public opinion, much like misinformation. Uh, we've seen examples of scientists speculating about the cause or impact of an environmental event uh, during media interviews and inadvertently, to kind of what you were talking about earlier, causing some anxiety uh, without appropriately framed context, right? How can science communicators address gaps in information during a crisis to ensure that the public doesn't fill those gaps with potentially inaccurate, incorrect assumptions or overreact or underreact for that matter? Yeah. So this is a spot on question. You know, first, um, scientists, we always worry about what our colleagues are going to think of us. And so, so often when we give interviews to the media, we actually are not being interviewed for the audience of whatever that radio show is, where our audience actually is our peers. We worry about our peers thinking we're hacks. So we start off every interview with all the things that we don't know. We don't know this. We don't know this. We don't know this. It was a paper, you know, five years ago that this, but I don't think they had enough sample size. And when, when a scientist who's supposed to be the expert starts off their interview, they get the softball pitch mm -hmm. and they list all the things that we don't know. That is the breeding ground for misinformation because the expert who got the five minute intro about how f smart they are just said, we don't know. And in reality, we know a lot of stuff. And so we, you lead off with what you, we do know. You know, we know this, we know that this type of oil, we know this, we know how much has been, you know, and the, these are the challenges that we're going to face. Uh, this is what we'll probably know in a couple of days. This is what's going to happen in, in a week. Um, and, um, you know, with time, we're going to know these things. Um, and we know a lot. And when you feed your audience, even just the smallest meal, they will be much more nourished than saying we don't know. And then the other thing is that we have to treat our conversations not like when we treat our colleagues. You know, uh, I have colleagues that are, you know, almost, you know, best, best friends with and half of our discussion is skepticism, uh, you know, and uh, that's fine in science, but skepticism can be equated into we don't know or uncertainty um, for the audience. And that's not, you know, a shell game. It's just that we work in a different realm about what we want out of the outcome. And an audience wants to know what's going on. Whereas my buddy and I were talking science. We want to know like where we're going, what's the significance of this, what kind of course correction we need in, in, you know, in sample design. So misinformation is kind of the other side of the coin. Uh, you know, complex concepts become easily distorted, overly simplified, right? Uh, why is it that science is a prime target for miscommunication or misinformation? And how do we kind of decomplicate the landscape in order to be understood? I think scientists make things complicated because we're so excited and passionate about what we do that we want to tell this most wonderful story and we want to give them all the tidbits. And more often than not, Folks want to know certain factors and they want to know how you got there and what it means and move on. 
And uh, the, my, my route is, is to answer the people's questions or give them what likely is needed. And if they want more, we'll give them more. Uh, but I think a lot of misinformation stems also from compl- making things more complex than they have to. And this isn't about ma- dumbing things down. Mm-hmm. It's about identifying how you quench the thirst of your audience. And if they want to have appetizers and a dinner afterwards, fine. <laughs> Well, in in your book, Chris, and, and, and just continuing this line of discussion, you talk about your experiences, both positive and negative, and dealing with the filter through which all of this is shared, all this information is shared by scientists, um, the media. And um, you talk about um, you know, trying to share scientific information, trying to correct misinformation and providing updates to the public. You also point out that media coverage helps scientists amplify their work beyond the research community to hit an audience they might not otherwise reach. So in many ways, scientists and the media need each other, right? They need each other. So how can they form, how can you form effective relationships with journalists as a scientist? Well, I would first say that, and I tell scientists all the time who are wary of the media, uh, um, reporters are very similar to scientists, and we have a lot more in common than we think. We both like to, the, you know, the chase of a story. We want to have a different angle that 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 you know beats out everybody else, and we want to tell the greatest story that leaves, you know, an informed outcome. And uh, that's a scientist and a reporter. And so I, you know, the first step is is to realize is that you know we both have the same. We have the same desires. We just have a little bit different timescales, you know, and in a route. And, uh, you know, collectively, I think that, uh, yeah, a media and a science and, and not a disingenuous way right. can certainly move the ball forward. Yeah. Excellent. Well, you wrote about this, uh, and particularly the time frame you just mentioned, Chris, uh, in an op-ed on CNN. And uh, where you said, and you were writing here about the Deepwater Horizon, the Gulf of Mexico oil spill that we all watched on television uh, for, you know, more than a decade ago. And and what I liked about that, what you wrote there in the op-ed was science is like an epic novel and not necessarily in order. Let the dust settle and read the book in a few years. So in an era, as you just discussed, of 24-hour news cycle, instant, uh, you know, need for, for information, um, how can science communicators balance that long time frame you're talking about with the need to provide information now? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a bigger picture, there's a sense of education about to the, you know, to the public and to the media about how science works, not molecular biology, but how our culture works, what our value system is. You know, just as much scientists have work to do about, you know, getting science out there. Um, I think the media and other folks have work to do to understand the art culture and what are the risks and rewards and what makes us happy and why we go to work every day. You know, going back to this time issue, yeah, I mean, any particular issue in science takes years to settle and uh, it may never settle. But every day we learn more and more and we have a, fi- a fuller and richer story. The trick is, is how do you communicate uh, and give folks the TikTok link? Right. Uh, in a way that says, hey, listen, this is where we are now. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to start off. This is where we are now. 
uh, you know, things are going to change. We're going to get new technology on board. We're going to learn more. But we're working from this platform of knowledge. And, and as we move forward, we're going to develop a richer and more, uh, you know, nuanced outcome. But this is what's going on. And this is what matters to you. Excellent. Yeah. What, what matters to you, I think, is really important. And in, in when we think about the real stakeholders on the other end of our communications, and I was really moved by the anecdote that uh, you use about the fishermen on the coast of Cocodri, uh, Louisiana, um, as he took out uh, or as you, you went out to collect water samples uh, when you were researching the impact of Deepwater Horizon. It's an important reminder that at the heart of every uh, event um, and maybe even every scientific journey that there are real people and real livelihoods impacted, not just governments, not just companies. It also underscores the need for scientists, I believe, to not only provide accurate information, but connect with people, address concerns, empower uh, themselves to make informed decisions. And how, how can we better make sure that happens? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that, the, uh, it, you know, it, it surprised most people, but I think the human touch of understanding how our science affects everyday lives is so significant, and I find it to be inspiring mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and uplifting when you, you listen to people about what matters to them and, how, and what's going on. So I have worked on a lot of oil spills, and, you know, it's not a game for me, and it's not an NGO's opportunity to exploit their platform or push their platform. An oil spill in somebody's backyard is where they plan to get married next week. It's where they recover their fish to feed their family. It's, uh, it provides the, the warmest and most fondest memories of their lives. And uh, you have to help them understand where things are going to be now and in the future. And that's the challenge is to make it human and, mm -hmm. uh, and make it real for folks. And that's not disingenuous. I keep saying this, but yeah. it's real. Yeah. Why shouldn't it be? Absolutely. Like, you, you know, I love this um, quote in the book, and I, I, I forgive me if I get the name wrong. Baruch Fishoff, you, you quote in the book, yeah. said the goal of science communications is not agreement, but fewer, better disagreements. Are we ready to accept the fact that we're going to have disagreements in the communications environment we're in, Chris? You see what I mean? Is that People want things in black and white, it seems increasingly, and the idea of uncertainty and disagreement runs counter to that trend. Yeah. You know, disagreement's fine, right? Because a, a, good, a good disagreement, if we're willing to listen and change and be swayed, is really great. That's how we have progress, exactly. right? Yeah. You know, good discussion. Um, you know, that. so disagreement is, is good, I think, but that should not... Um, you know, run the story, right? I mean, we have to realize that things aren't always fast and things aren't always certain, uh, but we want to have small victories of inf information that gives people an understanding of what matters to them every day. And can we continue to nourish people time in and time out and leave them less frustrated? And what I say, make dinner. Because we want to tell somebody some information that is so useful to them or so informative that at dinner that night, they say, you'll never know what I learned today from a scientist. <laughs> How do you make dinner? 
Right. And that's what I tell scientists. That's, that's really food that's for thought. That's food for thought. Thanks, Mike. Success is making dinner. Well, I want to put a plug in here for Chris, too, as we close. Chris just won a big award uh, this month from the American Chemical Society for an, uh, materially increasing the public's knowledge of chemistry, which is where we started, started Chris, that you're a chemist. <laughs> tell us a little bit about that award, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's called the American Chemical Society is the, you know, the, the professional organization for chemists. It's a very large, very prestigious. Uh, I take great pride being a member of the American Chemical Society and even greater excitement for winning this award. Um, this is a, a gradient stack where two managers of the American Chemical Society's newsroom and it's, the award has now been given out 57 times. Wow. It is a, uh, an award that, interestingly, and this is a really interesting case study, was early on given to reporters. Uh, and, and so over 57 years, it's gone from the, the above-the-fold big story science journalists in the Post and, you know, and the New York Times. And then you know, that you know, science journalism got taken is no longer in the newspapers. You see a transition in the winners into folks who are writing for magazines. And then you see another transition to uh, write, science writers who are writing in books. And in the last seven or eight years, we're seeing a transition at this award, which used to go to reporters and journalists, is coming to scientists like me. And I'm still trying to figure out what that all means. I think that's probably not a bad thing, though. Oh, it's a good thing. Except the fact that I would argue that they should give the award out every other year, one to a journalist and one to a scientist. There you go. Because there aren't many many ways that we can um, uh, award great science journalism. And um, why not alternate it? Exactly. Well, I bring it up, too, uh, to prove, if nothing else, that Mike and I get the best guests on the crux. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, thank you. This has been a fantastic discussion. Um, Your book is Science Communication in a Crisis, an insider's guide. Highly recommend it. For our listeners, thank you. And we'll be back. Mike and I will be back for another episode next week. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux. And make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.